Heavenly Father, thank you once again for the opportunity that we have to gather together, focusing on you and on your word. And so, Lord, I ask for your blessing tonight. I pray that you would um, be with me, that you would clear my mind and help me to think with clarity. I pray that I would be able to speak with clarity. I ask that you would um, help each one of us, all of us, tonight as we sit and listen to your word and what's in your word. I pray that we would have open hearts and open ears and open eyes that we might see um, your goodness and be able to learn what it means to walk in faith and trust in you. So Lord, I ask for your help tonight, help on my end and help on the end of the listeners um, that we might hear from you. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, before we get into the text, I would like to do a quick overview once again of Deuteronomy. Now, four years, 40 years prior to when the setting of Deuteronomy happened, God had redeemed the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt in quite the dramatic fashion. And we find that account in the book of Exodus. They were redeemed from death, literally from death, from the angel of death by the blood of a lamb painted on their doorpost. They were set free from bondage of slavery and brought out of slavery through the waters of the Red Sea. And finally, they were brought to the mountain of the Lord, Mount Sinai, where the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, entered into covenant with them. Now, God is a God of covenant. This is how he relates to his people. He covenants with them. My grandchildren taught me what covenant means in their sweet little catechism. The question is, what is a covenant? A covenant is a relationship that God establishes with us. Imagine a four-year-old saying this, okay? It's much cuter. A covenant is a relationship that God establishes with us and guarantees by his word. Simply put, it's a relationship that God establishes with us. It's his initiation. He establishes with his people, and it's guaranteed. The covenant is guaranteed by his word. And so the book of Deuteronomy is a recap of the covenant that God established with Israel at Mount Sinai. Now, there are lots of different covenants in the scriptures. And in your study guides, in the very back of your study guides, in the appendix, we have listed for you all of the um, covenants that God established in scripture. And and the one that we're going to be looking at, the one that was established with Israel at Sinai, is what is known as a suzerain vassal covenant covenant. And we also have that definition in the back of your um, study guides. I encourage you to take a look at that. But I'm going to read for you what a suzerain vassal covenant is. It is a conditional covenant. There are some covenants that are unconditional, one-sided only. But this is a conditional covenant that God has established with his people. And and this is what the Zondervan NIV study Bible defines suzerain vassal covenant as. This is a covenant regulating the relationship between a great king and one of his subject kings. The great king claims absolute right of sovereignty, demanded total loyalty and service, parentheses, the vassal must love his suzerain, and pledges protection of the subject's realm and dynasty, conditional on the vassal's faithfulness and loyalty to him. The vassal pledged absolute loyalty to his suzerain, whatever service his suzerain demanded, and exclusive reliance on the suzerain's protection. Participants called each other lord and servant, or father and son. And so this was very common in the cultural context with which Deuteronomy is written in. It was very common for the people of Israel. They would have understood exactly what this covenant was all about. We have to do a little homework to understand it a little bit. But they would have understood. They would have heard the law. They would have heard the book of Deuteronomy and known right away what Moses was trying to teach them. You see, Yahweh, their God, he is the great king. 
He is the great king. And them, they, Israel, were the vassal in which were called to be loyal to him. And so it is into this context that Deuteronomy is written. And I find it particularly beautiful to think about how God works in and amongst his people. You know, it's just beautiful how he brings about his word through a particular person into a particular context. And they would have that understanding. He communicated with them in terms that they would understand what their relationship was to be with him. He condescends in such a way that we would understand and know him. And so Deuteronomy is a suzerain vassal treaty patterned in just the way any other government in that time period would have created a treaty with a lesser tribe. And so it follows the same pattern as all of the treaties that followed um, the exact same pattern. Chapters 1 through 4 in Deuteronomy begin as a historic prologue. They, they set the terms. They, they introduce the God, the king, um, and they set all the terms. Then chapters 5 through 26 are the stipulations of the covenant, the rules of the relationship, the rules that they are to have with one another. Chapters 27 through 30 are the blessings and cursings. Blessings for obedience, cursing for disobedience. And then in the final chapters, 31 through 34, Moses gives instructions on the succession, who was going to succeed him, and arrangements for how the people were to go into the promised land and how they were to live. And so this is kind of a brief overview, flyover, of what the whole of Deuteronomy is all about. So I want to, with that in mind, I want us to begin our study, and we're going to start in Deuteronomy chapter 1, in verse 1. So if you could turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 1, verse 1. And the word of the Lord says this. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness, in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. Y'all know where that is exactly, right? <laughs> you know right where we're talking about. Very specific towns or cities or locations. It's kind of like when we are trying to explain where something is at and we say between Route 113 and Cowpath Road, you're going to find that dentist office right there. Um, they knew in that context exactly where we, they were talking about. They all, so this tells us, this communicates to us that this is a real story. This is real events. These are real people who had a real location um, so that we would know and be able to understand that this is real, that we can trust us, that this is true. And so we learn right away out of the gate in the first verse of Deuteronomy that were, the words Moses spoke, he spoke it to all of Israel at a specific location. They were located beyond the Jordan um, River, not in the promised land, on the outside of the promised land, but they were poised, ready to go in. They were right on the border. He goes on in verse 2, it is 11 days journey from Horeb. Horeb is the word that Deuteronomy uses almost exclusively to talk about Sinai, Mount Sinai. It's the same, same mountain, it's the same event. It is 11 days from Horeb to, by the way, of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. After he had defeated Sihon, the king of Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth and in Edrei. So we're giving the, the who, it's all of Israel, but we also learn which generation of Israel we're talking about. It's the generation that took 40 years to make an 11-day journey. It's the second generation of Israelites. I think there's a little bit of tongue-in-cheek in here when he talks about it's an 11-day journey 40 years later. Here we are. We're finally there. So the who of Israel is the second generation of Israel. They, weren't the, they were children or they were not even born yet when the exodus happened. It was 40 years later. This is when they were poised at the promised land once again 
that Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him. So remember how we talked about last week, how the Lord is the one who is speaking through his prophets and through his um, people as he, as he gives them the word of the Lord. And then the people, these men, are giving to the people the word of the Lord. So the Lord speaks through Moses. Everything we have in Deuteronomy is the word of the Lord spoken through Moses. And we know that it happened after there was this victory, this defeat of these two kings. And we're going to learn about that, I think, next week or the week after, um, these two kings. And this, this serves as a reminder to the people that are listening to the sermon of what God had done already. He had already given them victory, a taste of victory. They had won in these two battles. And that was intended to give them boldness and courage and confidence as they were set to go into the promised land to face more armies and more battles that were ahead. That God had already given them victory. They can go forward and walk in confidence that he will do the same again. So this is setting the stage for that. We've learned a lot of things already in the beginning in just the first four verses. Who our audience is, who the author is, when it was, and where they were located. So let's continue on with verse 5. Beyond the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law saying, now I just want to pause there right in the middle of the sentence because I find this to be very, very important. Moses undertook to explain this law. Those are words describing what it is we do with the word of God. It's expositing the word of God. He is preaching a sermon. I know that I just said a few minutes ago that this is a suzerain vassal treaty, but it's done as a sermon. He's taking this treaty, this covenant, this law that God has given to them 40 years prior, and he wants to explain it. He's bringing it before this new generation, the second generation, as they are poised to go into the promised land, and he's explaining it to them. He's saying, this is the word of the Lord. This is what it means in your context. This is what it looks like to live it out. And that's exactly what is intended to happen on a Sunday morning in church when our pastors get up in front of us with the open Bible in their hands. They are called to exposit the word of God, to explain the word of God and help us to understand how we are called to know God and to live out his commands in our our cultural context. Now remember again what that cultural context is for them. Who these people were, poised on the promised land, 40 years they've been in the wilderness, all of their life they've only known Moses as their leader. Moses is now 120 years old. He's probably going to die in the next month or two. They all can see that he's an elderly man. They all can see and they know and they feel and they sense that his time is drawing to a close. So that means that there's going to be a transition of power, a transition of leadership coming. And we all know how unstable things get when there's transitions of leadership. They're also leaving what is familiar to them. All of their lives, they've been in the wilderness. And for as uncomfortable and hard as the wilderness was for them, that's all they knew. And they're being brought into what God had promised. But what they do know about what God had promised is it was a great land, but there were also giants in that land and fortified cities in that land and a lot of battles that were coming. And so what these people were facing was a time of insecurity and stability and fear. And what Moses' last words to him, what he felt was the most important thing that they could hear from him was the word of God. I want us to understand and see and know deep in our hearts that in our world that we live in right now, we are too living in a time of instability and insecurity. And what we need most to calm our fears, to give us security, is a word from God. We don't need fancy words. We don't need pep talks. We need a word from the Lord. We need to hear from him. 
the one who is sovereign and who is in control of all things. And this is what Moses gives to this generation of people. His final words are a word of the Lord, from the Lord. So let's begin our exposition of Moses' exposition. Look at verse 6. Moses begins, The Lord our God said to us in Horeb, he's taking them back 40 years And he's taking them back to the previous generation. The generation that had just experienced the Exodus had been at the Mount of Horeb. And he says, and he reminds them of who the Lord, who is the one making the commands? Who is the one that covenanted with them? It is the Lord our God. He uses God's most personal covenantal name to talk about God. Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh Elohim is the name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. It is his personal covenantal name. It, it, um, it talks about his intimacy and his relationship with people, with his people. This is Yahweh Elohim who's talking to us. And throughout the entire book of Deuteronomy, that phrase, the Lord our God or the Lord your God, is used 260 times. We are intended to know who this God is. He is the Lord, our God. He's our covenantal God who enters into relationship with us, calls us to rela- to, into relationship with us. This is the God who is at Horeb. This is the God who is speaking to them, who is covenanting with them. This is the Lord. He is our God. And he said to us in Horeb, you have stayed long enough at this mountain Turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all the neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country and in the lowlands and in the Negev, by the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river of Euphrates. He's defining the boundaries of the promised land. Again, they would have known better than we could know exactly what that meant because they lived in that culture. But these are the boundaries of the land that he has given them. And he's telling them, you've stayed long enough at this mountain. They had been at the mountain for a year. They had been at this mountain with the Lord in this um, time, the season of training and preparation for their journey to the promised land for a whole year. And let's kind of rehearse and remember as quickly as we can what happened in that year. Now, there was the debacle of the golden calf. We don't like to think about that, but it was part of what happened at the mountain when they worshiped this golden calf instead of the Lord Yahweh. But at that mountain, remember also that this is the place where they saw the fire and the cloud of God descend upon the mountain. They visibly saw the presence of God. They, vis- they heard his audible voice speaking to them from the mountain, giving them the law. He had given them the commandments. He had, he had given them the entire law. He had given them the instructions for the tabernacle, the place that they were to build together at that mountain where God was going to make his dwelling place with them. And he would travel with them in the, in the tabernacle, and that would be the center of their life. All of that was happening at Mount Horeb in that year. And it was time for them to go. The Lord said, you've been trained. It's time. You're going to leave. He says in verse 8, See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of that land that the Lord swore to your fathers, Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. See, I have set the land before you. Turn, leave, and see. There is something going on here throughout this whole passage that we were looking at this week. The word see or seen is repeatedly woven throughout it. And it's, when there is something that is repeated for us, we need to pay attention to that. And this is the first time we are called to see. And I believe that what the Lord is calling them to, this first generation, this generation that had already seen amazing things, is to see with eyes of faith. They were being called to see with eyes of faith. What does it mean to see with eyes of faith? Well, Hebrews 11 chapter 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the confidence of things not seen. To see with eyes of faith means you see beyond your circumstances. 
to what God is doing. You see beyond what is going on all around you, and you see what God has promised in his word, and you believe him, and you trust him, and then you walk out in obedience to his word, regardless of what everything else is going on around you. This is what it means to walk by faith. This is what it means to see what the Lord has commanded. He is calling them. He is saying, I've set this land before you. Look at it. See it. But don't just see the land. See like Abraham saw the city that God was building. See that. Don't just see the hills. Don't just see the fruit. Don't just see what's there. See what God is doing there. What God is promising there. And go and take it. It's yours. They're being called to leave the mountain and walk a life of faith. And this is what we too are being called to do. So many times we will ask God to give us faith, to make us give us more faith. Just give me more faith, Lord. Give me more faith. And when we're asking for more faith, what we're asking for is God to give us the ability to see what cannot be seen. And that typically happens in the midst of trials and tribulations, in the midst of difficulties of various kinds. And that's exactly what Moses goes on to lay out before his um, audience, before this generation of Israel in his sermon. He is calling them to a life of faith as he preaches about their parents. And he begins to unfold for them the ways in which we can see God's faithfulness in trials. And so let's continue on. Um, he, he starts, let's look at verse 9. Now, I know that this verse 9 seems like it's not exactly, it seems like it's a detour a little bit. They're supposed to leave them out, and then all of a sudden he starts talking about I have a leadership crisis. I don't know what to do with all this. Let's, let's look at this. At the time I said to you, I am not able to bear you by myself. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he promised you. But how can I bear myself by myself the weight and burden of you and your strife? So... Moses and the people of Israel are experiencing what I have entitled a trial of blessing. We don't expect there to be a trial involved when the Lord is blessing us, do we? That's exactly what's happening here. He has been faithful to his word. He had promised Abraham in Genesis 15 and in Genesis 22 that he was going to make Abraham's offspring as numerous as the heavens, as the stars in the heavens. And you know what? Abraham had no children. And that seemed like a pipe dream. But Abraham finally had a son. God brought life out of a dead, barren womb and gave him a son. And then his son had two sons. And it was very slow going. But eventually 70 of them landed themselves in Egypt. And now 400 years later, there are about two and a half million of them. God is faithful to his word, and he blessed abundantly. And you know what? Moses was like, you know what? There's problems here, but I want God to continue to be faithful, and I want him to continue to bless. bless." He's not complaining, but he is being honest about the trials that ensue because of the blessing of God, because of his faithfulness to us. Now, I think that if we were to think about it for just a moment, we could agree with Moses on this. I mean, anybody who has had children knows that children are a blessing from the Lord. And the more blessings you have, the more difficult your life becomes. (laughs) Even in this Bible study, in, in our morning study, our rooted kids, God has blessed our rooted kids ministry with more children than we've ever had, which created a bit of a leadership crisis. But here's the thing about the blessings, whether it be um, trials that come through blessings. It's an opportunity for us to see the faithfulness of God. 
One, we see his faithfulness to his word. But two, we also see his faithfulness to provide and equip for us what we need to carry out what he's called us to do. We've seen that in rooted kids. And Moses tells us about that in his um, accounting of this. Pick it up in verse 13. He says, choose for you your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. And you answer me, the things that you have spoken is good for us to do. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and set them as heads over you, commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers throughout your tribes. And I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will bear it. I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all the things that you should do. So God provided for Moses a plan. And we know when we did our research and looked back into the history of this particular story, we know that God did that through Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, who helped him navigate But it was ultimately the Lord who provided the wisdom to do this. It's the Lord who, through his father-in-law, brought order out of the chaos. Because that's the nature of God. He is one who always is bringing order out of chaos, whether it be in Israel, whether it was in creation, whether it is in each one of our lives and the chaos that we have. God is at work bringing order out of the chaos. And so the Lord has set to get, put together a plan for them. And it was a perfect plan for them. It was perfect for their context and what they were about to do. He set up military leaders and he set up judicial leaders. It was the perfect plan for this group of people at this time in their life. And I know that there have been many teachings and sermons specifically just on this passage that analyze it and critique it and how we're supposed to take this and translate that to the church. And we just don't have the time to do all that. But one of the things I would like us to pull from this is what it means to be a godly leader. What it looks like to be called to be a godly leader, specifically in the church context. We see that in here. They were to choose men who were wise, understanding, and experienced. Understanding means to be discerning, to be able to discern between good and almost good. They needed to be wise, and where would their wisdom come from? It only could only come from the Lord himself, for the Lord himself holds all wisdom. So these were to be men of God, godly men, who were looking to the Lord, who were looking to the Lord for their wisdom, for discernment, who had experienced a little bit of life, and they were to rule and to lead with righteousness, the righteousness that comes from God, righteous judgment, showing no partiality, not favoring one person over another or one, um, the rich over the poor or men over women or the Jewish person, over the alien. They were to treat all people the same, to judge by God's judgment equally across the board. And then they were also not to have fear of man. They were not to be intimidated to to judge in righteousness because the judgment that they were giving was God's judgment, not theirs. It was God's word that they were using. It was God's word, so they didn't need to fear man. And we can take that to us to heart today in our cultural context, that we need not be afraid and intimidated by other, other people. When we speak truth and we speak righteousness, because what we're speaking, if we're speaking God's word, we are speaking his word, his righteousness, his truth. And we don't have to be afraid. It's not our words, it's his words, and we can learn from that. So the people of Israel and Moses were experiencing immediately before they even left the mountain of Horeb, a trial of blessing. But God was faithful to them. He's been faithful to them in in answering the promises that he gave to their forefathers. He was faithful in giving them wisdom, 
in order to organize. He is always faithful. And so they turn. And it's time for them to leave. And what do they see? Look at verse 19. Then we set out from Horeb and went through all that great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea. So the first thing they see after they turn away from the trial that they had was another trial. This one is different. This is more of a trial by fire. They went from Horeb through the great and terrifying wilderness. And don't miss this. Who led them there? They were being obedient. They're not going through the great and terrifying wilderness because they were disobedient. They were being obedient. The Lord himself is leading them into this great and terrifying wilderness. And let me tell you what scripture teaches us about the great and terrifying wilderness. It's about 100 miles of almost completely waterless plateau. 100 miles. Imagine taking 2.5 million people 100 miles in a waterless place. Where there is no water, there is no food. There are also scorpions and serpents there. And I don't know what other scary little things are out there but probably a lot. This was not a pleasant journey for them. It was a great and terrifying wilderness. They used those words intentionally for us to give us a picture of where God was leading them. And I don't know about you, but sometimes in my heart lies this expectation that I will never, as a child of the king, ever have to go through a great and terrifying wilderness that everything should go my way, and I should be completely comfortable at all times. And so I find myself just a little bit shocked when I land in the great and terrifying wilderness. And I think, what's wrong? And this is what they do. What's wrong with me? Is God mad at me? But God is leading them through the great and terrifying wilderness for a purpose, a very specific purpose. And what we can draw from that is that we can draw an understanding of the way of w- in which God works. Because it is in the great and terrifying wilderness, which I believe translate to us as trials and difficulties of various kinds. That this is the place, this is the place where God shows himself most clearly to us. That we can see him with the eyes of faith as beautiful and as good and as kind. He is seeking to show this to us and to that generation and to the second generation of Israelites. James 1, 2 through 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. 1 Peter 1.6 also says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold when tried by fire, may be found to result sorry, in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God is doing something in the great and terrifying wilderness. He's revealing himself to us. He's testing our faith and not testing it to see if we have it, but testing it to purify it, to make it strengthened and stronger, to make it more beautiful than even gold that is purified by fire. And that's what he's doing here in this case. He brings them through the great and terrifying wilderness. And notice, he brought them through it. It says they landed in Kadesh Barnea. They were there. They could see the evidence of God's work as they stood on the border. And he said to them in verse 20, You have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. Hear this call again. See The Lord, your God, has set the land before you. Look, open your eyes. See with the eyes of faith what God is doing, what he has done for you, what he is telling you he will do for you. God has set the land before you. It is yours for the taking. Go up, take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. 
See with eyes of faith. See what God has done. Remember, he said that he would make a multitude out of you and look around you. He has done that. Israel themselves was evidence of God's faithfulness. Look, see, he brought you through the great and terrifying wilderness. He sustained you. You can trust him to continue to do what he said he will do when you go into the promised land. So what did they do? What did they do? Then all of you came near me and said, let us send men before us that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up and the cities into which we shall come. They didn't take the word of the Lord and trust him. He said, go, it's yours. It's yours for the taking, just take it. And they said, "Mm, thanks God, appreciate your word, but I would like some men from our group to go in before us and I want them to come back and tell us that it's going to be okay. We're beginning to see that they don't see. We're beginning to see they, they're not seeing. They're taking God's word and they set it aside in unbelief and want man's word. They want man's assurance. All will be well. They're looking to man for their hope, to man for their assurance, and turning aside from the word of God. Verse 23, Moses says, continues on, The thing seemed good to me, and I took 12 men from you, one man from each tribe. And they turned and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshcol and spied it out. And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us and brought us word again and said, It is a good land that the Lord our God has given us. I love how Moses kind of um, highlighted the positive of the reports of the spies. So when we go back, we went back in our homework, we look back at this account, and we realize that um, we, we learn about the asking for the spies to go originates with the people, but then God condescends and allows for them to do this. In spite of the fact that this is coming from a place of doubt and distrust in God, God allows them to seek assurance in another way. And so we know that they sent the 12 tribes in, and two of them, Joshua and Caleb, come back into the land with a great and glowing report. These men saw the good land that the Lord had given them and knew that God would be faithful to give it to them. But 10 of the men came back and said, guys, yeah, 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 there are grapes and there's milk and there's honey and there's all these good things, but there are giants There are fortified cities. There are armies. There is no way. No way we can do this. We're just grasshoppers. They couldn't see. And so the people listen to the advice and counsel and the wisdom of man versus God's word. And it led them into a place of rebellion. Look at verse 26. Yet you would not go up. They disobeyed God, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified all the way up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. They are giants. The sons of the Anakim are giants. So when they listened to the report and they heard the word of man, they set aside the word of God and rebelled against him. They disobeyed. They refused to go up. And then they murmured in their hearts. They had a skewed perspective. And we begin to see what happens in a heart that is unbelieving, that cannot see. They thought of God as a God who hated them. They thought he hated them. 
They thought he was out to destroy them. And so because of the way they viewed God and their skewed perspective of him, they murmured, they complained against him, against their circumstances, and they were blind to everything that he was doing. And we have to honestly admit that there are times where we get into that place, when we find ourselves in a great and terrifying wilderness, when we begin to set aside God's word, and start listening to the words of man, or start looking at all of our circumstances, we begin to ask the question, is God mad at me? Does he hate me? Is he out to get me? Is he going to destroy me? And we base our judgment about who God is on our circumstances, rather looking at our circumstances through the lens of who God is. And this is what they did. This is what they did. Their hearts, they had a heart of unbelief. There's the anatomy of unbelief in this passage that we can learn and grow from. And the anatomy of unbelief is spiritual blindness. The inability to see the reality of what God is doing. The inability to see of what is right in front of you. God's power had already been seen by them in their number. In, at Mount Sinai, they had seen God's power. They had seen it. He goes on to say in verse 29, Then I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. Verse 30, the Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. He had already fought for them. They had seen with their own eyes what God had done in Egypt, where he had given 10 plagues to prove that he was greater than any of the gods of Egypt. He showed himself faithful. He showed himself powerful. He showed himself mighty in Egypt. They had already seen it, but yet they did not see. This goes to show us That seeing, physical seeing, physical signs and wonders and miracles do not necessitate belief. So many times in our hearts we think, if I could just see a miracle, I would believe. But this is clear evidence that you could see a million miracles and still not believe. We saw that when we studied Matthew last year. Jesus performed miracle after miracle after miracle, and yet most, almost nobody believed him. Nobody believed that he was truly the Messiah, the Son of God. Seeing signs and wonders does not conjure up belief. It is only the Lord himself who can do that in our hearts, who can change our hearts, who can give us a heart that believes and sees. They had the inability, they were unable to see God's love for them, his care, his provision. They said, he hates us, he seeks to destroy us, but the reality was, he was caring for them all along. Verse 31, and in the wilderness where you have seen, notice the repetition of the word seen, where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you, as a man carries his son, all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tent in fire by night and in the cloud by day to show you by what way you should go. The reality that they could not see was that God loved them. He cared for them. He carried them like a father carries his precious son all the way through that wilderness. He went before them, seeking out the perfect place for them, the place where they ought to go. The reality about who God is, is that he loves them, he cares for them, he provides for them, he is for them, he is working for them, he is faithful to his word, faithful to his promises, he has been in the past, he is today, and he will be tomorrow. 
That's the reality that they're to judge their circumstances are. Not judging God on their circumstances. But we know the truth of the matter is that this people, this generation, generation number one, did not believe, did not trust, did not obey God. And because of their unbelief, they forfeited the promises of God. They forfeited the blessing. And they were condemned to perish in the wilderness. So, what do we do with all of this? We need to learn from others' example. This is what Moses is doing. Don't miss the fact that this second generation of Israelites are poised in the same position that their parents were. They're ready to go. God had brought them again, now, the second time, to the promised land. This new generation is in the same place their parents were. And Moses, in retelling that history, is calling them to learn from their parents' example and to see the faithfulness of God that they had missed, to trust him, and then to walk out and step out in obedience. We can learn from others' examples. 1 Corinthians 10:11 says, Now these things happened to them, to Israel, as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have come. So they have been written down for them, for the second generation. They heard the sermon, and all of Israel since then has heard the sermon. They are intended to learn from the sermon. And the call is for us today. The same call that they were intended to hear was to, call, was to walk out, step out in faith and believe and trusting in God's word. Trusting in his promises. Trusting what this book tells us. They were called, the second generation, were called to go into the promised land. And we know from Joshua that they did. They obeyed. But we too are being called to a life of faith. And there's much at stake here. Eternity is at stake. For the word of God tells us that judgment is coming. There is judgment coming, for the wages of sin is death. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Judgment is coming for all, because all have sinned. But this word, this Bible, tells us that God sent his son, his one and only son, into this world. Jesus, the eternal son of God, came into the great and terrifying wilderness He was born, he grew, he lived the perfect life. He went toe-to-toe with Satan after 40 days in the wilderness. 40 days of hunger, 40 days of thirst, sound a little familiar? But unlike Israel, the nation, the true and better Israel, did not falter, and he did not fail in his great and terrifying wilderness. By holding fast to the word of God and fighting temptation with the word of God, he came through his wilderness trial victorious and remained faithful and obedient to God his Father. Jesus continued to live the perfect life until ultimately, till he finally and ultimately went through the the biggest, the ultimate great and terrifying wilderness when he went on the cross. It was on the cross as he hung there, taking on the penalty for our sins, the sins that we deserve to um, be crucified for. He hung there, crying out, I thirst. He was despised and rejected. And he did that for you and for me in order that we might find salvation and freedom from the judgment that is to come. Because he took on our judgment, because he went to the ultimate, through the ultimate great 
and terrifying wilderness. We will never have to do that. We will never have to go through the ultimate great and terrifying wilderness. There is no greater terrifying thing than to spend eternity in judgment away from God. And because Jesus went there in our place, we will never have to go through that. This is the message of the Bible. If we place our faith, we see this truth and place our faith and trust in Jesus, we become in him, we are in him, we belong to him, we enter into covenant with him, and he has taken on our punishment. And we do not have to experience that. Not only that, but in this life, all of our trials and all of our sufferings, we have the promise that yet even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil because he walks with us. We don't have to go through our smaller, great, and terrifying wilderness alone because of Jesus and because of who he is. So in conclusion, the question that we have before us is do we believe him? Do we believe the words of God? Do we believe the promise of God? Do we believe the truth that God has said in his word that he has given us salvation in his son, the Lord Jesus? Hebrews 3, 12 through 15 says, Take care, sisters, lest there, be, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another to every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for um, the call that comes out of your word to us that we trust you, that we believe your word, that we believe who you are. We believe what your word has said and then walk in faithful obedience to your commands. Lord, I pray that you would um, help us in our unbelief. We do believe, but we ask that you help our unbelief. We ask that you would help us to see our circumstances through the lens of your character and your goodness and your faithfulness and your love and your provision. I pray that the word of God would be our guide to how we ought to view our lives and how we ought to view you and your character. Lord, please teach us. Please open our eyes that we might see, and I pray that we would respond to your voice today. In Jesus' name, amen.